Today's text is Matthew 7, verses 12 through 20. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and those and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to be able to um, preach your word. I, I know that I am unworthy. And Lord, I, I understand that this is a, a privilege. And so I pray for a special help of the Spirit this morning, that I would be faithful, that you would fill me with the Spirit, Lord, that every word I say would be from you, that you would please keep me from saying anything that would be unhelpful. Lord, as we as we look at this text this morning, um, this is a very challenging text, Lord. It's a difficult text to preach, and so I pray for help. I pray that you would help me be clear. There would be no confusion about what you're saying. I pray that you would prepare all of our hearts and minds to receive your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew. Um, And we have finished, as of last week... um, We've done the introduction, and we've done what would be the body of the Sermon on the Mount. And so right now, um, starting at verse 12 in chapter 7, is where we're starting through 20, Jesus is is turning the Sermon on the Mount, and he's beginning his conclusion. And so verses 12 through 27 of of chapter 7 really serve as one thematic unit. Um, And so we're not going to be able to do verses 12 through 27 today. So um, we're only going to be able to do half of that. And so really, this sermon today, as well as uh, the next time when I finish verses 21 through 27, is to be treated as, as one entire sermon. And so just consider this part one of two sermons, and we're just not going to have time to do all of them today. Um, but we're going to do as much as we can, um, 12 through verses 20 today. Um, and just know that this is part one. And part two is coming later. Um, As you heard the scripture being read, I think that all of us can see that these texts, um, verses 12 through really 27, but 12 through 20, as you heard read, are some of the most pointed, difficult texts to hear um, and and really um, (laughs) to preach. As I have prepared to go through the Sermon on the Mount, I have both looked forward with great anticipation, with excitement to preach these verses, as well as looked forward equally with great dread to preach these verses Um, for for a few reasons. First of all, um, I come to you this morning not as someone who lives um, as he ought, but as a sinner. Um, I don't claim to live perfectly. As a matter of fact, um, just like you, I, uh, I come humbly to these verses, not in an arrogant way whatsoever, but humbly hoping along with you to eat um, and to dine at the table of the word of the Lord, hoping that we will find our only hope in the gospel, that we would be fed spiritually and that we would find our rest and that we would find our strength from the gospel of Christ alone. 
So, um, while these verses should cause um, all of us to kind of take a step back and, and be very much challenged, I want you to know that I'm being challenged along with them. So, um, as I'm, I'm told by the Scriptures to, to preach the Word with, with authority and with power, I don't claim any of that myself. Um, but it's only God's authority and God's power in His Word. And I just want to be able to do... Um, I want to be able to do it justice. As we look at these verses today, and really all of through 27, the question arises, and this is really part of the dread and the anticipation, the question arises, what can happen as we look at such penetrating verses as these texts today? There's, there's really two things that can happen in the hearts and lives of people here today. Um, one... Those who are fakes can finally be identified as fakes, can see that they're fakes, and that they would become Christians today. That's a good thing, that they would finally see that they have been playing a Christian game their entire life, thinking that they're Christians, and as they see these verses, they, they see that, oh, I've been walking down the wide road. Oh, I've been really bearing bad fruit. Oh, I might be the ones in verses 21 through 23 who stand in front of the Lord and say, didn't I do all these things? And he's going to say, I never knew you. I have been one that has been building a bad foundation. And you finally see that this morning. You, you've always thought that you were a Christian, but you see as you look at these, what could be some of the scariest verses in the Bible. I'm a fake. I don't know Jesus. I act like I do. And you would be converted. That's the good thing that could happen today. But there's a, there's a downside. That those who are, are believers but delicate, those who are baby Christians could be driven into such despair that they would say, I can never measure up. I quit. And I can't do it. And I have, I've seen this happen when verses like this are preached with such um, law, 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 works, and they don't throw in the gospel. There's, and I've done it myself. And you don't put the gospel on top of it and let people see that their only hope is Jesus. They will, as delicate souls, be driven to despair and walk away from the faith. And you can go to them and you can plead. The gospel is beautiful. And they won't listen. Because they say, I've tried it for too long. And I can't measure up. I'm tired of trying. And so that's, that's the downside of verses like this. That's the, verse, the side that scares me as I preach texts like this. Because if you're, if you're delicate, if you're new, if, you're, if you know that you're in the faith, but you're just a baby, I don't want for you to hear these verses and just be driven into despair. And we're all coming from different places this week. I mean, some of you have had great weeks and some of you have had terrible weeks. And so there's a lot of balance I'm pleading and been praying for the entire week here. These verses, most of the time, make me question my salvation when I read them. Um, uh, someone who's a pastor is not above reading verses like this. And verse 21 through 23 where they say, Lord, didn't I do all these things for you? And he's going to say, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. Everyone should read those and take pause. And so, um, Jesus, in this conclusion, as he's finishing off the Sermon on the Mount, um, he's driving home the importance of what it means to be a follower of him um, and what a being a follower of him looks like. These words are grave. Jesus's tone is sober. The message is very serious and he is not candy coating what it means to be a follower of the gospel of the kingdom by any means now. So the point for really you and I to ask ourselves is, are we following Jesus this morning? Or are we following some kind of version of Jesus that we've created in our mind in order to not feel bad and make ourselves not feel like we're going to hell? Now, there's good reasons, as I've said, to go through this self-examination that these verses should cause us to do. Um, the first thing is it's going to ask ourselves to ask the hard questions. Am I bearing fruit in my life that... Let's me look that shows that I'm a Christian or am I just a Christian in name only? And as I said, the bad um, side is that you can question your salvation. You can say every um, there's no way that we're going to do this. And I'm just I guess I'm going to hell. And I mean, that's terrible, right? That's that's awful. We would all agree that that's terrible. And that's not the goal of today. Um, 
I don't want to send real Christians into despair. Instead, as we look at this, I'm hoping that the Lord will be kind to us all. That the gospel would be so saturated as we look at a a tough text like this in, in these words. And that we would find our hope only in Christ. Um, but I do want those who are fakes to be con- confronted. It's my desperate hope that if you have been walking this life as a fake your entire life, and you even might even have yourself, you certainly have other people fooled, but maybe you've had your own self fooled, which is even worse, that you would be confronted, that you wouldn't run away because you're exposed, instead run to Jesus. Um, and in the South particularly, because here's some of the things I've noticed Living in the South my entire life. I was born in South Carolina. I've been raised in South Carolina. I was only a little transplant for three years, and that was because God, was, God sent me to seminary, so I can kind of claim that as the Lord's work before I finally came back to South Carolina. So I love the South, all right? Um, but these are some of the things that I've noticed, and if you've lived, lived in the South, or if you're not from the South, you've come, you've definitely seen this, because I think that they see it um, better than we do. This is what I've seen. Um, In the South, we're Christians because we try to do more good than bad. In the South, we're Christians because we've gone to church our entire life. In the South, I've heard somebody say this, I've been a Christian since I was born. Really? How's that possible? Um, I've heard someone uh, say that I'm a a Christian because I prayed a prayer at RA camp, um, and I cried really hard, so I definitely must have meant it. Um, And so I'm a Christian because of that day. You're, You're looking back to a day and an event rather than looking at what's going on in your life and seeing if your life reflects a treasuring of Jesus right now. That's how we know we're saved. We don't know we're saved because we can look back at an event when we're nine. We know that we're saved because of a treasuring of Jesus now. And so here we come to um, Jesus in verse 12, turning, turning the Sermon on the Mount and going into his conclusion. And his transition sentence is verse 12 as he, as he goes into his conclusion. And his conclusion is going to be um, filled with, or his conclusion is, has, has a little pattern to it, and we're going to see that. We're only going to do two of the four. But his conclusion has four sets of contrasting images, four sets. But before we get to those four sets, and we're only going to do two today, he has a transition sentence of verse 12, and it's the golden rule. I mean, it's one of the most popular verses any of us have ever heard. He uses the golden rule. This is why this sermon is the best sermon ever preached. I mean, (laughs) verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, um, if you've been with us, maybe the law and the prophets, that little phrase, the law and the prophets rings true. If you look over at 5.17, um, you can see in 5.17, right before uh, we finished the introduction, which is the Beatitudes and the salt and light verses, in 5.17 he starts, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish, there it is, the law and the prophets. And so we have the law and the prophets in 5.17, we have the law and the prophets in 7.12, serving as little bookends, and so all the theologians call this inclusio, and that just means basically that's the kind of the bookends of the body. So before that, which is the Beatitudes and the Salt and Lights, the introduction, 517 through 712 is the body, and now after 712, 13 through 27 is his conclusion. So he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. Now, notice one little thing before we get into the body here, that Jesus does not state the golden rule, negatively, meaning don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That's pretty simple, right? He doesn't say it negatively. He says it positively. He says, do to others the things that you would want them to do unto you. That's that's much harder. That's much differently. And then he says that this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. And let me just kind of submit to you that the golden rule um, is summarized in another place, by Christ, in Matthew 22, this is what it says. You, you should know this verse as well. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Just, just listen. This is what it says. And he said to them, this is the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, by the way. Um, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And then 39 says, and this is the second, and it is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend, here it is, All the law and the prophets. So Christ is equating the golden rule. This is 
this is the summation of the law and prophets, and he's taking the great, first and second greatest commandment, and he's saying all these things are the same. The way that you love others and do unto them as you would have them do unto you is that you love God and you love other people. And so that's his transition statement. Now, let's be really clear here. We've been clear the entire time because as <clears throat> I think, hopefully, <laughs> as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, it's been pretty clear. But we can read the golden rule as just a sentence in of its own and all of a sudden become law keepers. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay, I got it. What my job is, is to do. Work, 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 do. So that's not it. I mean, the whole we, Jesus started with the Beatitudes. He started with the gospel intentionally. So let's just be clear here. In order to be able to do, under, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, um, you must have a transformed life. You must be clear in the fact that there is no way that you can keep the Sermon on the Mount or the Golden Rule or any, um, <clears throat> or any of His greatest commandments. Um, you must begin with the confession that you are and I am completely incapable of doing these things and that we are absolutely dependent upon Jesus and that we need to put our faith in Christ. We need to become Christians. And as we do that, then... We're able to do unto others as they've been able to, or, or do unto others as we'd want them to do unto us. So, now we're turning and we're actually entering in the conclusion, the four sets of contrasting images. Um, and Sinclair Ferguson says, as we're entering in here, he says, in this portion, Jesus is vigorously underlining the difference between what things may seem and what they are in reality. So, here's the deal. Um, I've entitled this sermon. Uh, one way or the other, one way or the other. And that just means Jesus is pointing to us right now that there's one way and there's another way. And that's it. There isn't a third option. It's one way, Christ's way, or the other way, not Christ's way. And he's, he's pressing his listeners here and he's, he's calling for decision and commitment right now. He's demanding repentance and trust and obedience. <clears throat> he's utterly clear right now. One choice, there's only two ways, one choice is going to lead to heaven. One choice is going to lead to hell. One way is the way of the Lord. One way is the way of the world. And so in this Sermon on the Mount, the conclusion is absolutely designed for you and I to be confronted with a time of decision. We can't just hear this and remain in indecision. Indecision is a decision, and it is the wrong way. The point of this conclusion is to push us into commitment right now. And Jesus is demanding repentance and trust and obedience as we're going into this. So here's the first set of verses. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way, that way is road or path. Um, and so we can see here that there's, there's a narrow way and a wide way. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. So there's, there's language of gates and roads or, or language of gates and paths. And he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And then, contrasting, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So here's the first, here's the first um, contrast set of contrasting images. It's the gates or the paths. And what Jesus is saying is that the Christian must enter by the narrow gate and the narrow way. You must enter. If you don't enter by the narrow gate and the narrow way, you are in turn absolutely entering by the wide gate. You are absolutely entering the wide way. Um, the narrow way is not easy. Uh, we, have a, we have a fence in our yard, and um, it's kind of like got grass grown up under the door. So sometimes whenever I try to open, I have to like pick it up and I can just barely get it open. And I've got a five-year-old that's about, she's about this skinny. I mean, she's just ridiculously skinny, right? So I, all I got to do is just kind of barely get it open. Zoom, she just zooms right there. And I'm just like, how do you get through there? I mean, it's pretty amazing how, how difficult it is to get through there. She, she can zoom right through it. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. Um, entering something very narrow whenever <laughs> you're significantly larger than that is difficult. It's designed to be difficult. And that's, that's the language of what he's trying to say here. Walking the road, entering the gate, being a Christian is difficult. It's not supposed to be easy. 
So here's the question. If that's the case, has your Christian life just been easy the whole time? It could mean, it could mean that you're not on the narrow way. It may be that you're on the wide road. If it's easy, simple, no problems ever, it could be that you're on the wide road and it could be that you're heading towards destruction. Because the way that is hard that leads to life is narrow. Now, a question can arise, um, and I didn't even know this question arose until the theologians (laughs) um, arose it for me, if that's the way you say it. Um, showed it to me. So they're saying, well, which one comes first? Is it the gate or the, or the road? Is it, do I open up the gate and get saved and then walk the road of Christianity? Or do I walk the road of Christianity and then open up the gate to go to heaven? Which one is it? Well, it seems that it's the first, it's the first one. I open up the gate and get saved and then I walk the road. Um, but all the theologians I read actually said that both are kind of be, to be taken together. Um, the gate and the road in Jesus' mind are all one thing. You're, you're entering the gate and walking the road, and it's all one kind of deal. Um, <clears throat> James Boyce says, Both teach the comparative ease, talking about the hard road or the, hard, or the narrow, um, the narrow or the, or the wide. He said, Both the narrow and the wide um, teach the comparative ease of drifting along through life to damnation as opposed to the difficulty of pursuing and gaining eternal life. So if we are finding ourselves where we thought we've entered the narrow gate, but then everything's easy, everything's simple, everything's never problematic, it could be that we've been on the wide road the whole time. It's not like some, sometime we, we switched over from the narrow gate, we've entered it and we were a Christian and now we've found ourselves like we've lost our Christianity, we've lost our faith. What it means is um, the gate and the road are be taken along the entire time. And that, that's, you're walking down it the, your whole life. And you either um, are going to walk down it your entire life and find yourself to be a believer at the end. Or, and you're going to persevere to the end. Or you're going to show yourself that you were never were, were a believer. Now, many, many, many and few are some troubling words for me. Um, as a pastor... My desire is that many would come to faith. Um, as a Christian, you would see that you want many in, in the people that you interact with to come to Jesus. Um, but it seems to be in these verses that that's just not going to be the case. In the end, many are going to be led to destruction and they're going to be taken the easy way and only a few. And so that's, that's troubling for me. That, that, finds, um, that makes me pretty sad. But there's one thing that we can pull from that is this. Um, Wherever you are in your life as a believer, don't ever find comfort in security of numbers. If you say, well, everybody seems to be walking down this path, it must be the right way. I wouldn't say that that's true. The opposite seems to be true here in in this verse. Um, The way is hard that leads to life, and few are on that road. So there is no comfort. Throw away that there's secure, this notion that there's security in numbers. So let's ask this question again. If you look like and act like every Christian on your team, if you look like and act like every Christian in your family or in your job or in your classes or in your group that you hang with or in your church, if you look and act like everything, like every one of those people, what I think this is telling us is that we need to take pause and assess again. We need to assess again. And it shouldn't come as a surprise if we find ourselves on the wide road because many are on the wide road. Um, James Boyce says, Do not assume you're on the way to life unless you are actually pursuing it in obedience to Christ. In obedience to Christ. So the life that is on the narrow road has a pattern of obedience to Jesus. And so if we don't see that in our lives, we need to, every one of us need to stop and step back um, and ask ourselves whether we are really on the narrow way or the wide road. So, um, few find it. Few find it. 
And there's really two ways to think about the few. Um, there's other religions, and then there's in the church. Let's talk about the other religions first. Um, when we talk about few, that means that those who are Muslim, Buddhist, Jewish, etc., anybody that's not a Christian, they're a significant portion of the population of the world. And so as we say, few find Jesus and many don't, then we can stop and we can say, well, yeah, that makes total sense then. Because as a survey, the six plus billion people in the world, um, it's clear from just sociology that more people aren't Christians that are. So it makes more it makes more sense to say, okay, that makes sense then. Few find Jesus, most don't. But there's another way to think about it, not just in other religions, but let's narrow it down into the church. The people in the church. Um, Jesus is preaching to his followers. And so this may be the more correct way to look at this text. It's just looking at the church, people who call themselves Christians. Many are down on the path of destruction. Few are actually on the road to life in the church that seems to be the point of verses 21 through 23 whenever people are standing there didn't i do all these things for you jesus and he's like you never knew me you never knew me you might have done things but you never knew me this makes me think of colossians 1 let me read colossians 1 to you um because there's a uh, there's a real challenge for us in Colossians chapter 1, and this is in 21 through 23. This is what it says. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we, we hear that, and that's all good news. We were alienated. We were enemies of God. We were not following him. And then he's reconciled us. He's given us his righteousness. As a matter of fact, it says that he has presented us now holy and blameless before him. So we've been justified. We've been declared innocent. We've been saved, if you will. But then 23 has this little sentence. And you're like, what, what does that mean? He has presented you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, <clears throat> verse 23 says, if you indeed continue in the faith. He's presented me holy and blameless before him. That's happened. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope you had in the gospel. That shifting pa paints the imagery of the roads. We, we might be on the road, the narrow road, but if we shift, we find ourselves to have really been on the wide road our entire life. That is scary. That gives us reason to take caution. And it can be troublesome because if these, these words, this language of way and road can start conjuring up what can be wrong assumptions or wrong understandings of sanctification. This is what I mean. At faith, we put our faith in Jesus. He declares us righteous. We receive his righteousness. We are therefore justified. After we're justified, now we begin what's called the process of sanctification. We are, we are saved now, but we're going through the whole process of salvation. We're justified because we've asked Christ. He's given us his righteousness. And at that moment, we go through something called sanctification. And that just means that the day you become saved till the day you die, you become more like Jesus. That's the process of being set apart, the process of being holy. And so this road and this imagery can start making us think that, um, well, if I, if I stay on that road right, then I can, I can stay saved. But if I don't stay on that road right, then I'll lose my salvation. And that's, the Bible is not anywhere going to tell us that you can lose your salvation. It's going to tell you that you must continue stable and steadfast. But the language of the Bible is, if you don't continue stable and steadfast, then you need to go back to justification. And what happened is, is you were never truly justified. You, you can't lose your salvation. You either are justified, and you walk the path, or you're not justified, and you never were. And you're just faking it, maybe even to yourself. You can't lose your salvation. Salvation cannot be earned. Salvation is free. If it could be earned, that means once you're justified, if you don't stay on that road, then you've got to do good works. You've got to keep earning salvation in order to stay on the process, this road, this way of sanctification. And that's not the, that's not the biblical language at all. Um, we are only on the road. We're only in the process of sanctification because of God. He is the one that will keep us there. Not our own will, not our own self-effort, not our own earning. So here's the really tricky part. 
in what seems to be the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount then. This is the really, really tricky part to all this. There must be fruit. There must be fruit. That is just what he's teaching us here. We're going to see that in the next section. There must be fruit. If we're walking the road and we're really um, believers, we must be doing good works. This fruit or this good works does not earn salvation, though. This fruit or this good works instead gives evidence that salvation has already happened. So this is what I mean by that. I mean, we work from justification. We work from salvation, not to salvation. We are saved, and now that we're saved, we're working from that, and we joyously want to have good works in our life. We joyously want to bear fruit for God, and that's not earning our salvation, it's giving evidence. Tim Keller says it this way, um, Christianity is different than every other religion. Every other religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I obey, if I do what I'm supposed to do, now I'm accepted by God. Christianity says it the other way. I'm accepted, I'm justified, therefore now I obey. There's a big difference between the two. And Christianity is the only one that says that. So you were absolutely saved to bear fruit. You were absolutely saved to bear fruit. There's just a few verses that will tell you this. Um, first is Romans 7.4. Romans 7.4 says, Likewise, my, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. So you were saved to bear fruit, but the bearing of fruit does not earn your salvation. And that that road language can confuse us. We'll think that as we're walking down this road, if we're not bearing fruit, then we're going to lose our salvation and we're earning it by bearing fruit. And the truth is that you are saved in order to bear fruit, but it's giving evidence of something that's already happened. All right. There's a few more verses like Ephesians 2.10. God chose you. No, I'm going to make sure sure I get it right. Um, Ephesians 2.10. I wish I had this memorized. Um, This is what it says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before you were even born, God had already prepared your good works, and he created you to be in Christ Jesus, and now you're supposed to walk into him. John 15, 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and, and do good works or bear fruit. That's John 15, 16. So it's clear all throughout um, Scripture that we are to do good works, and those good works are a, a demonstration of worship to Jesus. They're they are giving evidence that we are truly saved. So here's the deal, all right? Um, for, for any of you, wherever you are in life, if you say, I believe in Jesus, I've put my faith in him, I want to go to heaven, I, I, believe, I asked Jesus in my heart, one day whenever I was, somebody told me the gospel, and they said, well, you know, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Well, I certainly want to go to hell. That sounds awful. Do you want hell or burning and terribleness, or do you not want that? Well, I, I don't want that. So <laughs> we say, I, want, I, I don't want to go to hell. Yeah, who's, what's the way to get away from hell? Jesus. Well, Jesus it is then. Um, give me the Jesus guy. That's, I certainly don't, I don't want hell. And so we, we kind of go through that little thing. And now what happens is, for people that are like that, they walk through life, um, they're glad that they're saved, they're glad, and I want to air quote, saved, because they don't want to go to hell. Um, but there isn't in their life a deep, deep love for Jesus. I mean, when you talk about Jesus, they can barely contain themselves. They treasure him. They know him. They want to pursue him in his word. They want to obey his scriptures. Everything that's in here, I want to do it because it gives him worship. It reflects how much I love him. There's none of that in their life. They just don't want to go to hell. There is no fruit in their life. If that is you, if you have walked down that path for the last year or the last 20 years, I'm, these verses are designed for you to hear and say, you're walking down the wide road. And that's not make you to say, well, fine, Jesus, I give up. It's instead wanting you to really look at Christ in the cross and what it meant for Jesus to die for you on the cross and say, I really want him now. 
I see the beauty of Jesus that he would die for me. Take my death. I can't believe that. I love him. I treasure him. I want him. That's the design of the verses. Not for you just to despair and say, well, then I can never do it. Sanctification um, is not designed for you to, to despair. Sanctification is designed for you to know whether you truly love Christ or not. Whenever I got married to Christy, no one had to come to me and say, now, just want to make sure you know, um, you're supposed to love her and not cheat on her. No one had to tell me that. Because I love her, I want to treasure her. I want to love her. I don't want to sin against her. It's the same thing with salvation. If you truly love God, then you want to obey Him. You want to love Him. You want to do the things that He wants. And if you don't have that in your heart, you don't know Him. Next set. Beware of the false prophets who come to you as sheep in clothing. Now what we're going to see here, um, we're going to see the second set is trees and teachers. Trees and teachers. Um, Good trees, bad trees, good teachers, bad teachers. And that's kind of the second set. You can go ahead and put it up there if you want. Um, the second set are of um, contrasting images is trees and teachers. And the point is, is that every, the Christian must bear good fruit um, and must have Christ-like character. And if that's the case, he will inherit eternal life. This must be in their life. They must bear fruit and they must have Christ-like character. The, the Christian must bear fruit of, of a Christ-like character, sorry, and he will inherit eternal life. So it says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets, they would lead us astray. False prophets would lead us astray. Um, they are falsifiers of God's word. Now, how are these false prophets falsifiers of God's word? They are very subtle in the way they do it. They're not going to come to you and say just outright obvious wrong things. They're going to be very subtle in the way they do it. They're not going to be reckless and they're not going to be obvious in their desire to destroy you. Instead, they're going to say things that are just about true. Their words and their teachings are mostly going to sound great. Um, so if that's the case, how are we supposed to know if they're false prophets, if their teachings sound great? Well, we're going to see it. And Jesus tells us twice just to make sure we don't miss it because it's not necessarily their teaching that's going to give it away. It's going to be their life. It's going to be their fruit. And he tells us twice, 16 and 20. Look what he says. 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. So the giveaway won't always be the theological distinctions that they make. It will be their fruits. They will not be able. False prophets, ravenous wolves, will not be able to live a life that bears fruit for God continually. It may be temporary, but who they are truly will always be revealed. Always. By the way, this, this word ravenous wolves, um, this is, it says, but they are inwardly ravenous wolves. These false prophets, man, this is some very, very strong language. The, from, this inwardly is actually from within their soul. They are ravenous or, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, rapacious um, where I think we get the word rape from. I mean, they are scavengers. They are wickedly horrible. And then he uses the word wolves. And there's a, there's a description in Acts 28 where Paul tells the, the people to look out for these wolves. Um, so this is a huge, huge... Um, they are greedy, voracious, insatiable, violent people in their hearts from within. And you can just contrast that. Don't do it right now. But one day um, this week, go look at John 10. And contrast that with the good shepherd who Christ is, who is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Compare that to these people who are wickedly horrible and just want to destroy the church. And he tells us to beware of them, that they are willing to deceive us, um, and that from this text they're clearly not Christians. Do we have them today? Do we have these people today? Um, we have them in our churches. We have them in our seminaries. They write books. They have blogs. They have TV shows. They're all over the place, and they're dangerous for the church. And if they're so influential, and they're so much smarter than us, <laughs> how are we going to detect them? And, and as I said, Jesus tells us in 16 and 20, we're going to be able to recognize them by their fruits. 
Um, just a couple things I want to point out to you is number one, they're going to look like sheep. It says they're going to come to you in sheep's clothing. They're going to look like sheep, but they're not going to be sheep. The next thing is that they're going to bear bad fruit. Look at 18. Um, well, look at 16 and following. Um, are grapes gathered from th- thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So um, talking about teachers or trees or whatever you want to say, um, those who are not good, they will not bear good fruit. And he's saying, this is kind of interesting when he says gapes, I'm sorry, grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles from a long way off. Thorn bushes produced these little berries and they looked kind of like grapes. So from a long way off, when you're looking at the thorn bush, you're like, oh, that must be a grape deal. You know, when you get up there, you see, and if you even try to take it and make wine with it, it's clearly not going to be good. And that's, that's the same thing with the other imagery um, with figs from thistles. From a long way off, the thistle bush looks kind of like a fig tree. But as you get close and as you see it, you see that it's clearly not. And that's exactly the way they are. From a long way off, they might look good. But as you get closer and you start seeing if they're working and they're supposed to doing what they're supposed to do they're not doing it um and actually um this is pretty interesting in this little text um as we've known uh matthew mark and luke kind of take these verses and um and write the same thing luke adds a little sentence after he says these things um luke adds a sentence in luke 6 he says the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks so that couple distinctions is that they're going to look like sheep they're going to bear bad fruit the way they're going to bear bad fruit is through bad teaching and through ungodly character those are the two things they're going to have um and so the question here um is are these people around us are these people in our lives and even more dangerously could you possibly be one um an unhealthy tree an unhealthy tree cannot bear good fruit let me, let me encourage you one thing really fast with verse 18. Um, verse 18, the first part, for those that are Christians, can be really encouraging, especially whenever you live a life like I do, and you're just like, oh, am I ever going to um, continually look like I'm, I'm loving Christ with my life? I have times where I want to do good things for Christ, and I do have some, but man, there seems to be some. It's kind of this Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Um, look what he says in 18. Every healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. That's good news. That's talking about Christians. And God, as he's looking down at you, he is seeing that the good fruit that you are bearing, he is very pleased with you. Verse 18 is very encouraging. Um, But the second half of that says this, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Now, what is a diseased tree? What is a diseased tree? From the context, it's showing us clearly that a diseased tree is the exact same thing in verse 15, a false prophet, a ravenous wolf. Um, and so that's why they can't bear good fruit. So that's, that's another distinction is, is that they bear bad fruit. Um, they look like trees. They look like sheep, these, these people. They bear bad fruit. They cannot bear good fruit. And usually the bad fruit is through bad teaching, um, false teaching, and ungodly character. But here's the last thing, last distinction of these people. Verse 19, and this is the threat of Christ. Remember, this Sermon on the Mount is very sober, very very straightforward, and he's not mixing words here. 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This fire um, is clearly imagery for hell. John the Baptist says some of these same words in 3.10. He says, every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, This is the imagery of what lies ahead for those who are not Christians. ESV Study Bible says the only thing bad trees are good for, the only thing those who are not Christians that may pretend or just be outright rebellious, the only thing that bad trees are good for is firewood. That's, That's pretty scary. Like I said in the beginning, these verses always, every time I read them, are scary and they, <laughs> they make me t- take a step back and be like, God, please don't let me be one of the people in verses 21 through 23. Um, but as I press into the gospel, and that's, that's the only hope we have as we press in and we, we say, Lord, I'm trusting you that faith in Jesus 
real true repentance, real true faith in Jesus is what I have to have for salvation. And as you have given me the righteousness of Christ, I know that I'm a believer. Now I press on in sanctification. And this sanctification shows that I am giving evidence of that changed life. I know that I have to have fruit in my life. I know that I have to have fruit. But since I know I have to have fruit, what is that fruit? What is it, God? It's not going to earn, but it's going to give evidence. What is it? And let's just real fast make a little list, and all of this fruit is for us in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been tracking with us the whole time, here's the fruit that we've seen so far just in the Sermon on the Mount of what it looks like is this. It says, verse 20, that you will recognize them by their fruits. This is what Jesus has so far told us the fruits would be. So if you're kind of, you've been with me hopefully the whole time, and you're wondering, all right, Fudd, I believe what you're saying. I haven't been walking with Jesus, and now I want to put my faith in Christ and start bearing fruit. Or you're in this despair moment like, oh, God, I've been fooling myself the entire life. What does fruit look like? I just want to hear what it is and know if I'm walking down the path so I can either become a Christian or have some satisfaction. Or you're not a Christian, and you need to put your faith in Jesus, and this is what fruit looks like. This is what he's told us so far in verses, I'm sorry, chapters 5 through 7. The fruit of the Lord looks, and a true believer looks like righteousness, transparent humility, purity, trusting and persistent prayerfulness. Persistent prayerfulness. That's what fruit looks like. Obedience to Jesus' words. Don't do this. Okay, don't do this. Okay, do this. Okay, that's what fruit looks like. Truthfulness, love, generosity, rejection of hypocritical lifestyles. That's what we've seen thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to pray. I want to be humble. I want to be pure. I want to be a truth teller. I want to love people. I want to be generous with my money. That's what it looks like. And so this is your time now. This is your moment now to do the real assessment. Now, here's the danger. You can be thinking to yourself, oh, I'm so glad I brought so-and-so. They, man, this is great that they heard this. Forget that. They're thinking about themselves right now. I want you to think about yourself. Don't be glad so-and-so is listening. Um, instead, just look at your own heart right now and look at yourself and say, is this my pattern of fruit? Do I have a pattern that is persistent in prayer? Do I have a pattern that's generous? Do I have a pattern that's humble? Do I have a pattern that's loving towards others? Am I truthful? Do I reject hypocrisy? And know this, that even if you start doing those things, that's not going to earn your salvation. It starts with faith in Jesus. It starts with the gospel believing that he died for you on your behalf and then from that living a life of worship that has that fruit I don't want for anyone here to not be a believer I want you all to be believers and the reality is Matthew 7 13 and 14 paints a grim reality it could be that this is just a blessed congregation and that we're all many here and we are all our believers but the picture that this is painting for us is that few find it. So I'm praying and I want you to say, well, then we're part of the many and we want to go pursue the few outside these walls. But in order to do that, I want you to take this time right now to really assess where you are. Have you been faking yourself out the whole, your whole life? Have you been playing a game your whole life? Don't be the person at the end of the world, the end of your life, who says, did I not do all these things for you? And he says, I never knew you. The Sermon on the Mount, this is my concluding sentence from D.A. Carson. The Sermon on the Mount offers two ways, and only two. One ends to life, one ends to good fruit, one ends to entrance of the kingdom, one ends to stability, one also, the other leads to destruction. The other leads to bad fruit. The other leads to fire. The other leads to exclusion from the kingdom, along with the other evildoers. The other leads to ruination. Solemn thoughts. 
these, a man will ignore the weight of these things and he will either be cursed or if he pays attention, he will be blessed and his own eternal life is at, is at stake. So I don't know where you are, but I'm pleading with you. I am pleading with you as we go into this time of worship to really ask yourself. Don't play games anymore. There's no, there's no reason to play games. Life is too short. I said at the beginning, these are scary verses to preach and great verses to preach because God could lead you to salvation, which is what I've been praying for the whole week. But scary because it's not fun to stand here and say these things to you and have people get a little bit ticked at me. I don't like it. I like people to like me. I'm very sinful. And so I'm pleading with you to look past me and listen to the truths of the scriptures and really put your faith in Christ if you don't know him and quit playing a game and live a life of worship that bears fruit. We're going to go into worship and if you need to talk, if you need to pray, um, I'll be down front for some part of the worship time and I'd love to have a, a chance to talk with you. Otherwise, just stand and worship with us. Let's pray. Lord, I confess to you that I know these verses are tough and I know that <laughs> I know that I'm long-winded and I know that I can get in the way. And so I pray that you would remove me out of the way right now and Holy Spirit, you would usher into my heart and all of us here if, if anybody's been distracted because of me this entire time that you would come now, Father, and penetrate down into my heart and all of our hearts and either, if we are believers, renew a desire to want to live a life of worship for Christ or if we're not, open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel. Help us see that we don't know Jesus and that we need to become believers. And God, may we all stand and worship you because you're worthy. I trust you, God, to do your work right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.